All right, everybody, welcome to episode three of Cheat Codes of Sickle Cell Podcast. Dr. Mike, we've got a good one. Yeah, I'm excited. Episode three, can you believe it? I can't. All right. We've got a What's Happening Now in Social Media segment that's going to knock your socks off. We've got a Warrior Word of the Day, and then you're going to top it off for us with breaking down a landmark clinical trial that's changed the way we treat sickle cell disease. All right, let's get to it. Let's do it. All right, so now we're on to our segment, What's Happening Now? So, Amar, uh, what's what's going on on the Snapchats? Not much on the Snapchats that I can talk about publicly, but uh, <laughs> at least on Twitter and Facebook. I think today the topic that caught my attention is an interesting one. It's, it's one that has got a lot of buzz around it, and, and it's related to cannabis. Ah, uh, buzz around it. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, that was very intentional. I'm seeing a lot about the value of marijuana in um, sickle cell disease, not just on social media, but also in clinic. I'm having these conversations more and more. And as you know, one of the studies we're doing right now at our hospital is characterizing how much marijuana our adolescent and teen population is using, especially in the context, at least here locally and and, and, in several other states, of the legalization of marijuana. Um, I think this has become a really important topic. As we can probably we guess that the discussion on social media surrounding cannabis is very positive. But what I wanted to bring to you and to talk about right now is the discussion surrounding smoking marijuana in individuals who have sickle cell disease. Yeah, so I, I think smoking anything for anybody is a bad idea. Vaporizing uh, has become popular and we're seeing a lot of bad side effects from that too. So I I think, you know, your lungs are delicate and you you don't want to put things in them that shouldn't be there. Right. And I think especially in sickle cell because uh, oxygenation status is so important and and when you're smoking stuff, it interferes with that and that that can cause problems. And and I have some young men who come in and they're coughing and I ask them, are you smoking? Sometimes it's cigarettes, sometimes it's other stuff. Yeah. And uh, it does cause problems. So I I think uh, there's maybe two pieces to that cannabis, you know, one is yes or no, and the other is if yes, how? And smoking is probably not the answer. Right. So I think that's a key point that I think that um, really needs to be emphasized over and over again, is that if you believe in cannabis being a major player in your therapy, certainly smoking it is the wrong choice, especially knowing that lung issues are a major cause of death in patients with sickle cell disease. C- coming to the positive side here a little bit, I do think that there's probably a role for um, THC, CBD in multiple settings in sickle cell disease. And whether that's for anxiolytic effects, whether that's for increasing or amplifying the way that opioids are hitting your body, which Kalpana Gupta, originally from University of Minnesota, now, now in Irvine, has shown that potentially THC or CBD can amplify how you feel your opioid effect. Um, resulting in, in less opioid use, which is a very interesting take on how cannabis could be used. I, I'm in general in clinic, when I have these conversations with my adult patients, I'm generally quite lenient about this. And I'm curious to see how you sort of go about that conversation with your patients. People are going to be using 
uh, cannabis. And I think it's, it's much better if you can have a conversation where they're willing to tell you that and don't feel judged. And I think, you know, people feel like it works. And I think there's probably real things to that. I do have concerns. I think, you know, these are not FDA labeled products. So what you get from one person is different than what you get from another person. I think smoking is bad. We have legalized marijuana in, in the state of Michigan now, medicinal and just for fun. I think we have to separate those two things. So if you say you're using marijuana to help with your sickle cell pain four times a day, every day, when you're not having sickle cell pain, you're not really using it for your That's sickle fair. cell pain. That's fair. And I, I think, you know, we need to be honest about that. Absolutely. So I, I think if we're going to try to use it uh, as as a medical agent, I think there might be a role for it there. And I, I think, you know, uh, some of the work you're, you're doing and, and uh, Zemsky and uh, Dr. Gupta is important. I, I think there probably is a role. But I think we need to separate those two things. You Certainly. Know, uh, what, what are you doing for recreation and, right. and what are you doing? Yeah, I think that's a pain? really good point. That's a really, really valid point. CBD. You might have noticed those three letters cropping up online or in your social media feeds. There's an interesting spin here on topical CBD oil, which I have seen come up quite a bit. I I think that that warrants a little bit of investigation. Yeah, so I you know I don't follow this maybe as close as I should, but I understand that there are these oils that have anti-inflammatory properties, but they don't have THC, the right. active ingredient right. that's psychotropic, and right. and so they you don't get high from them, but right. they help with inflammation. That obviously changes the equation. Then you're not doing it for fun. Exactly you're doing it for inflammation. Uh, I think you still have the problem of the quality control there, but uh, a lot of people are using these CBD oils. I I think there are probably a lot of different versions of it, and uh, we need to study it and see if it works. Absolutely. uh, If people feel like it's helping now, it seems to be pretty safe. There's certainly physicians out there. Uh, I, I, I guess I can't speak to Canada, but in the United States, at least, who are certifying their patients to be able to go to dispensaries and get, you know, more sort of refined product that's a little bit more stable and and a little bit more um, clean, I guess. And I feel like that that's going to become a trend pretty soon. So I feel like we as clinicians probably have to bring ourselves up to speed on how that works, what works, what doesn't work. I think, too, if we go there, I, I think there's a lot of consideration still. You know, I was talking to somebody who was flying from one place in California to another, and they had a bunch of their uh, marijuana products with them. Mm-hmm. And it's legal where they were coming from, legal where oh they were going, but not on the plane. Oh, boy. And they almost got into a lot of trouble over a candy bar. So I, <laughs> I, I think there'll be, you know, a lot of education of patients around, you know, how you use these things, when you use them, how do you do it within the law and, and, and not get in trouble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 10 seconds here to just make a, a public service announcement about juuling and vaping and how in the last two months... I've had two kids on life support from vaping-related injuries. You sent um, one for lung transplant. I mean, it is a real problem. So, so for anyone who's listening out there, if you are vaping, juuling, electronically inhaling anything, don't. Also, don't smoke. Agreed. Don't Especially smoke. Especially if you have sickle cell. A hundred percent agreed. All right. Thanks, Amar. All right, Warriors, my favorite segment, as you all know, because I like to make Dr. Mike sweat a little bit. Warrior word of the day. 
All right, Warriors, we are here with our Warrior Word of the Day segment with Dr. Mike, where Dr. Mike demystifies some words that we frequently hear in clinic in the hospital. Dr. Mike, I picked a good one for you today. All right. I hope you're ready. I am. Okay. I talk about this in clinic all the time. I teach patients about what this thing is Uh and why they have one. I talk to them about this thing being a filter, yeah, a forest, if you will, a dark, scary forest <laughs> okay. that red blood cells have to navigate through. All right. I think I'm getting the riddle. And only the best and the brightest make it through. Now you're losing me. If your red blood cell is not up to snuff, it'll get stuck in that dark, scary forest. I think you know what I'm talking about because we teach patients in clinic how to feel for this. And why it's important to know where it is, how big it is, and what complications you can have relating to this thing in your abdomen. There we go. You with me? I gotcha. All right. So the word of the day is the spleen. It is. Can you tell me a little bit about what the spleen is? Sure. Yeah. So the spleen is an organ in our abdomen. It's in the, we call it the left upper quadrant. Um, That's Dr. Lingo for the left side up under your ribs. So that means you can never never feel it. Like, I mean, in a normal... If it's normal size, it's hiding behind the the ninth, 10th, and 11th rib, and you you can't feel it. But uh, when it gets enlarged, you can. So if you can feel it, it's it's usually about three times bigger than it should be. And the spleen's super important. Like you said, it's a... What did you say? Dark, scary forest? Yeah, I like that. I'll I'll go with uh, red pulp with... uh, sinusoids and it cleans the blood. Blood cells live about 90 to 120 days. And over that time, they develop some damage to the the membrane, which is sort of the bag on the outside and the spleen kind of cleans them up as they go and then takes them out of circulation when they're, when they're too old. And if you have sickle cell, then the, the cells get damaged faster. So they have these repeated episodes of sickling and it causes damage to the outside of the red blood cells. They get stuck to blood vessels. They get picked up by the spleen. That's what the spleen's supposed to do. It's supposed to take them out of circulation. But sometimes that can get uh, overwhelmed and you can get a backup of the blood in the spleen. And sounds like that's what happened to your patient there. So the hemoglobin gets all caught in the spleen and it's almost like you're bleeding to death into your own spleen. That's exactly what happened to my patient. blood in your blood vessels. It's scary. Is is not there and uh, you you can go into shock. I mean, that was one of the scarier clinical experiences that I've had. It is, and uh, it's, I think, one of the reasons we teach parents in clinic to look for that. So if a child's looking pale, listless, if you can feel their spleen enlarging, and we teach people uh, how to palpate for spleens, how to feel for spleens. And that usually happens in little kids, you know, five-month-olds to two-year-olds is, is the, the peak age. What do you do for those kids, if especially if they have repeated episodes. If you have one episode, you're very likely to have another. So the treatment is to give a blood transfusion. And we usually give a little blood transfusion and just that little bit of extra blood reverses it and the blood starts coming out of the spleen. You get a good response. It'll happen again. So, um, and and when it happens again, it, it could be life-threatening, even fatal. So um, there are really two ways to prevent it. One is to remove the spleen or do what's called a splenectomy. And usually now we're able to do that with little tiny incisions and we put in cameras and it's called laparoscopic and it's it's not a not a huge surgery. I think minor surgery is surgery on somebody else. It's a, it's a pretty minor surgery. <laughs> I, you know, and, I, to that point though, I've had a couple patients over the summer that I did this on and, and they, they tolerated it quite well. 
Yeah, usually home in a, in a few days. Yeah. And, and once once you have the spleen out, you won't get another splenic sequestration. But the spleen's very important. In addition to filtering the blood, it also filters for bacteria. So it's like a giant lymph node that, that helps fight infections that get into the bloodstream. And there are a few bacteria that have sugar coatings. Um, we call them encapsulated organisms like uh, strep pneumonia or meningitis uh, bacteria called Neisseria meningitis that are often get into the bloodstream. They cause um, sepsis, which is like a bloodstream infection. It, it can be fatal. And the spleen usually clears those bacteria. So if you don't have a spleen or in sickle cell, um, sometimes even though you have a spleen, it's not working because of the damage from the sickle cells. And then if you're on rounds, you might hear that term functional asplenia. Functional asplenia or autosplenectomy. So um, basically that the idea is that the sickle cells have damaged the spleen and it's it's not working. When you have that, your spleen can't clear the, the bacteria out and you, you can um, get this sepsis. And, and used to be not that long ago, back in the 70s even, the average life expectancy for sickle cell was less than 10 years old. And that was because children were getting these autosplenectomy or functional asplenia and were dying from infections. With penicillin prophylaxis and vaccines, now we can prevent a lot of that. Um, there are other bad things that can happen to your spleen. If it's if it's enlarged, especially, you can have it get damaged and rupture, and that can cause a lot of bleeding. It's it's extremely painful. It's an emergency. You can have big episodes of, of vasoocclusion and splenic infarction, which can be painful. Do you think that you could... Are you ready for this? I don't know. Do you think you could explain to me how actually are the vaccines that we use protecting us in a setting of a spleen that's not working as well as it should. I got some explaining to do. Yes. Um, it's it's better to get those vaccines before you get your spleen removed because your spleen is involved in the response to the vaccine. But even after you've had your spleen out, um, the and, vaccines... And before you continue with that, just to dive, dive deeper into that, before your spleen is taken out, can you also give us a sense of what that means? Like how much in advance, how long does it take to get through being protected by by vaccines like can i get the vaccines today and get my spleen out tomorrow so um you can but you won't be protected so um we usually try to avoid taking spleens out until people are about five years old because their immune system is just not mature enough to to mount a good response and we usually like to to vaccinate at least a few weeks before we remove the spleen so that you have a good immune response. And in the immune response, you know, these vaccines are basically killed versions or inactive versions of what we're trying to make an immune response against. So you you get exposed to it, your body makes antibodies and makes T cells and an immune response so that if you get exposed to it again, you're ready to fight it off. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Mike, thank you again for the the sweat you put into this segment every week for us. It's appreciated. And um, to be honest, I, I, I learned quite a bit from you. Um, even, even in this setting, I, I learned quite a bit from you. So thank you for that. I hope you guys enjoyed our segment this week. Hi, Cheat Codes listener. Producer Patrick here. Last month, Dr. Z gave a TED Talk as part of TEDx Detroit. The title of his talk, Sickle Cell Disease, A Battle for Equality, Justice, and Respect. No surprise there. The full 10-minute speech is available on the TEDx YouTube channel, and there's a link in the program notes, but we wanted to give you a preview of Dr. Z's talk here on Cheat Codes. Even without knowing the subject of this work, even without knowing exactly what you're looking at, 
You can see the pain in this work. In this clip, Dr. Zaidi is describing the experience of a friend and artist named Hertz Nazir, a 46-year-old Haitian man with sickle cell disease. Hertz is an intelligent and talented painter. His art hangs in offices of towering skyscrapers and esteemed universities and medical facilities all over the world. Multi-million dollar companies seek out his art to represent them at their next conference or convention. So what was it then that drove Hertz to be kicked out of a hospital in the dead of winter with no jacket, no car, and nowhere to go? What was it that led him to joblessness and homelessness and having to start over and over and over again? You see, part of the answer is in his genes. But most of the answer is us. It's me and it's you. It's society and the medical system and how we treat individuals of color with chronic disease. Because you see, when Hertz is healthy and productive, he's a world-class artist. But when he's sick and begging for relief from his pain, he's just another black man looking for his next hit of narcotics. And this is the reason I'm here today. To hear Dr. Amar Zaidi's complete TEDx talk, click the link in the program notes or search Amar Zaidi TEDx Detroit on YouTube. That's A-H-M-A-R-Z-A-I-D-I, Amar Zaidi, TEDx Detroit on YouTube. This next segment comes from Delisa O'Brien, a young woman with sickle cell whose interest in holistic health led to an unexpected professional pursuit and some compelling research on the role nutrition can play in managing sickle cell. So please enjoy this share from Delisa O'Brien and doctors Mike and Amar will be back on the other side with the Red Blood Cell Research Review. Thanks. My name is Delisa O'Brien. I am 31 years old and I have sickle cell anemia, hemoglobin SS. My family immigrated to America from Guyana when I was five years old and I received medical treatment through the Valerie Fund Children's Center in New Jersey up until October 2010 when I received my last blood transfusion and was put on hydroxyurea primarily. For most of my young adult life, things started to feel quote unquote normal and I responded to the hydroxyurea well, so I would push the limits as any person in their early 20s does. I stayed out late partying and drinking, but I was always hyper aware that I still needed to take care of myself. I took my medication every night, I started taking supplements, I drank two liters of water most days, I home cooked meals and was physically active by going for bike rides and to the gym. I felt like I had more energy, I rarely had a crisis that I couldn't handle at home, and my levels were usually very good. I thought I was one of the lucky ones who outgrew my sickle cell. And then at 26, I got a really bad crisis that put me in the hospital. It was the first time I'd been in the hospital in almost six years. It completely knocked the wind out of my sails because I felt like I was doing everything right. And in many aspects, I was, but there is no such thing as outgrowing sickle cell. The doctor I was seeing at the time didn't have any answers for me when I asked about what other things I could be doing to support myself. In fact, I was told to Google it. 
that got me thinking that if the designated sickle cell medical center didn't have basic answers about vitamin supplements and nutrition, then I needed to not just Google information for myself, but share that information with other sicklers who were interested in holistic approaches to managing their disease. In November of 2019, I completed my final research project for my nutrition consultant certification course titled Dietary Strategies and Lifestyle Habits for Best Supporting Individuals with Sickle Cell Disease. To put it simply, I learned a lot, which also gives me a lot to share with my fellow sicklers. Undernutrition has been identified as a critical feature of sickle cell disease since the late 1980s, but this focus has still not been addressed at an empirical level. We know that America has a nutrition and consequently a chronic disease problem, and people with sickle cell are not spared from that. I'd like to share a few of the biggest insights I learned from working on my research project. First off, there is a link between chronic pain and inflammation, so focusing on an anti-inflammatory diet could reduce the amount of vaso-occlusive crises in sickle cell patients. Consumption of fruits and vegetables which contain many vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants, is inversely associated with inflammation and oxidative stress in adults. The higher the consumption of vegetables, the lower the occurrence of inflammation and oxidative stress. Luckily, most fresh fruits and vegetables have anti-inflammatory benefits, so it's more a matter of cutting out highly processed and refined foods. Secondly, Several studies all reference supplementation with zinc and magnesium as having positive effects in terms of protecting against infections with the former and reducing cell dehydration with the latter. It is important to learn how to take supplements, though. When I first began my supplement routine, I didn't know that there were fat-soluble and water-soluble nutrients, so there was a good chance that I wasn't properly absorbing most of what I was taking. If you are interested in taking supplements, learn what your current levels are first because everyone's body is different and you may not even be deficient in a particular vitamin or nutrient. As the name implies, you're meant to be supplementing the nutrients you don't get from your food, so a balanced diet will always take priority. The next thing I found interesting is that the prevalent use of indigenous traditional medicines in Africa has prompted a number of sub-Saharan African nations to establish research institutes aimed at the study of traditional medicines. I know that coming from a Caribbean West Indian background, I'm no stranger to drinking different bush teas and eating soups and foods made with provisions not typically found in an American supermarket and being told by my family that it was good for me. It would be beneficial to continue looking at how those cultural foods and remedies impact patients. Lastly, as I mentioned above, I was going to the gym and riding my bike for quite a while without complication. There is now growing acceptance that exercise prescription among individuals with chronic illness is equally important both for preventing comorbid conditions and in some cases conferring disease-modifying effects. Patients shouldn't be afraid to start slow with just walking for 30 minutes every day and easing into strength training and low-impact routines that align with their personal limitations. There is still research to be done in terms of sickle cell-targeted nutritional support, but there are plenty of resources where people can find general nutrition information. I really like the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health as a starting point for your personal research.
Nutrition is a standalone science, and I believe that we are slowly moving towards more integrative healthcare that embraces complementary and conventional approaches as equally important. I'm still waiting for my official certification to arrive in the mail, and I look forward to sharing my knowledge with the sickle cell community. All right, everybody, we are back here with Dr. Mike to break down another seminal landmark study for us in the Red Blood Cell Research Review segment of our show. Dr. Mike, I am so excited to hear you break down a study only the way Mike Callahan could. All right. Well, I think you're going to like this one because I'm talking today about hydroxyurea. And I'm talking about a seminal study in in sickle cell disease called the MESH trial. um, which made me all tingly. Published in the New England Journal. We've been using hydroxyurea now for more than 25 years. Wow. This was published in 1995. It's called The Effect of Hydroxyurea on the Frequency of Painful Crises in Sickle Cell Anemia. Before this study started, people had been using hydroxyurea, and there was an open-label study that showed that hydroxyurea increased fetal hemoglobin, and we knew fetal hemoglobin uh, was associated with better outcomes in sickle cell, less pain episodes. Sure. But in order to make sure the drug worked, they wanted to do the gold standard study, the best kind of study. So they did a double-blind, randomized clinical trial. So patients were getting placebo, like a sugar pill, or they were getting hydroxyurea. Mm -hmm. And it was double-blinded, meaning they didn't know and their doctor didn't know. Okay. And with hydroxyurea, the size of the red blood cells increases, fetal hemoglobin goes up. So you could lose that blinding if people looked at the labs. So they made rules around that to try to prevent people from looking at the labs. Okay. And so they they had 148 men and 151 women enroll on the study at 21 clinics throughout the country. And 152 of them got randomized or assigned to the hydroxyurea group and 147 to the placebo group. Wow. And the main thing they were looking at, the primary outcome, was how many pain episodes people had. So in the hydroxyurea group, they had 2.5 pain episodes per year. Okay. And in the placebo group, they had 4.5 wow. episodes. Wow, almost so double. Th- that group was basically the same other than hydroxyurea, and yeah, almost almost double. They also looked at time to having a pain crisis, and it was longer. Sure. If you were on hydroxyurea, and time to the second pain crisis was longer. They looked at acute chest syndrome and hydroxyurea reduced acute chest syndrome, 25 in the hydroxyurea group versus 51 in the placebo Again, group. Again, almost so 50%. Wow. About half of them. Um, and transfusions. People on hydroxyurea had 48 transfusions compared to 73 in the placebo group. Wow. So the hydroxyurea worked. It prevented pain, prevented acute chest, it prevented transfusions. That's amazing. What happened to the laboratory parameters? So the laboratory parameters uh, were what was expected. So the fetal hemoglobin went up, the size of the red blood cells went up, people were taking it, and and, uh, it was working. That's amazing. So this was like a foundational block in what we do every day. And I I think, you know, one piece that people are always concerned about is is side effects. And a placebo-controlled trial is a great way to look at side effects because people don't know if they're getting the drug or not. So they'll report what symptoms they're having, and, and you can see if there are more on the drug than the placebo, then maybe it's a side effect from the drug. But the side effects were really similar between the two groups. So um, there were not significant differences in in adverse events between the two groups. So it it was a very safe drug. Amazing. Well, there you have it, folks. The reason why we use hydroxyurea the way we do, straight from Dr. Mike, breaking down the MSH trial. 
And that wraps up the third episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. Mike, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to this pod, share it with somebody who needs to learn about sickle cell disease, and make sure you follow us on social media. Is your Twitter game up, Dr. Mike? You know it. All right. We'll see you guys next time.